We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Amazing Again, How the 2015 New York Mets Brought the Magic Back to Queens. The publisher, Sports Publishing, the author, Greg Prince. Please join me as we welcome home Greg Prince to the clubhouse. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Greg. As always, it's, uh, well, first, before we even get into the book, I just want to say something. This, uh, many moons ago, Greg told me that he was working on a new book. And I said, uh, as soon as he told me that, I said, all right, please let me know when the publication date is. I want to make sure you come back. And there were two reasons why. One, Greg is a fantastic writer. And mainly I'm saying this for those of you listening to the podcast, because I think most of you here probably even know Greg. But one, Greg is a fantastic writer. Two, he's a mensch. And it could be one, you're a mensch. Two, you're a fantastic writer. I'm not, it could go either way. But those are the two reasons why I'm, I'm so glad that you came back again and that, that you have another, another book to come back for. Well, bat batting orders can be overrated, so whatever, <laughs> whatever order you want to put in. Thank All right. you very much. I, I agree with that. Uh, so the, I guess to, to get going, uh, you did tell me many months ago that you were working on a new book. So if you could just let everyone know how this particular book came, to, came about. Well, I have to thank the 2015 Mets for winning the pennant, mostly. Um, Honestly, it happened very quickly, uh, really due to the, some of the folks sitting in the back from Skyhorse Publishing who uh, got in touch with me the afternoon of game one of the World Series. At that point, the Mets had just won the pennant, obviously, and I would say the Mets were a bigger deal than they've been in New York, certainly, and I guess on the baseball stage, than they'd been in at least 15 years, because Mets hadn't been to the World Series in 15 years. And I think also, we didn't talk about it at the time, but it, it definitely hit me that you know, the Mets sort of, I don't want to get into a whole uh, hissing contest, if you will, uh, with, with the Yankees, but I think the Mets, for the first time in about 20 years, had that sense of this was their town, and this was their moment, and what could be better than the Mets going on to win the World Series and having a book out like a couple of weeks, if not sooner. And I guess uh, folks at Skyhorse figured I had a leg up because I write a blog uh, with a friend of mine named Jason Fry, uh, you know, cover every game and a lot of stuff in between. So you know, there, there was a font of material from which uh, to cull and mold and work from there. So that was, I think, why uh, they wanted, they talked to me about it. I thought, hey, why wouldn't I want to write a book about the Mets winning the World Series? I've been a Mets fan my whole life, and I've been waiting for the Mets to get back to the World Series, like most of the people in this room, for 15 years. Uh, again, the caveat was they had to win the World Series, and I had to get it out, like, in 10 minutes, basically. <laughs> and I'm not kidding about the 10-minute part. Uh, in fact, I had to negotiate having a potential ticker tape parade to go to. And then, let me finish the book, because I figured that was part of the story. Uh, so I spent the rest of that week 
starting that Tuesday on two tracks. One was watching the Mets in the World Series and rooting for them and all of the very happy stress that comes with something like that if you're a lifetime fan. And part of it was working on telling the story of 2015 and trying to decide, is it okay to root for the Mets on my account and not just root for the Mets? <laughs> because once I'm rooting for myself, that seems wrong somehow. Uh, it just seems to mix, mix signals with uh, karma and the baseball gods and whoever else uh, you might want to attribute these things to. And the Mets lose the first two games anyway, and it's like, eh, it doesn't really matter now. <laughs> but I kept working at it, and I uh, clearly remember uh, pushing out five chapters of the book on, and then turning off my computer and heading for the Long Island Railroad to get to City Field for Game 3, my first World Series game. And then the Mets win that night, and, you know, we're back in this thing, and I think the book's, uh, you know, might, might be a go. That's when I was going to the game the next night, and I was... Too, quite frankly, too tired to do anything that, that Saturday afternoon, but I'm going to come back, have a tie game, work on this all day on Sunday before game five. Well, you know what happened in game four, which was the Mets blew a lead. Daniel Murphy, on not to speak ill of Daniel Murphy on St. Patrick's Day. But, uh, <laughs> Daniel, da Daniel Murphy's abilities as a second baseman sort of uh, betrayed him. And uh, some other things did not go well, and they lost game four. It's three to one, and now I'm just depressed. It has nothing to do with the book at this point, and I've pretty much given up on the whole thing. And then I sort of have to talk myself back, back from not even from the ledge, but just off the couch, off whatever, <laughs> and say, you know, come on, game five, you win tonight, then all you got to do is win two in Kansas City. And, and I've just made, I've made up my mind, we're going to win tonight. I'm gonna come home. I, I wasn't going to the game. I was I was going to uh, watch it with my father, um, and I was coming back later at night. But I thought that's okay. I'll, I'll get come back. I'll write. It was my turn to write about the, the game for the blog, and then I'll get a couple of hours of sleep. I'll get up in the morning. I'll start working on. You know, I, I think I left off in late May somewhere in the writing of the, the book, and then of course they lost game five, <laughs> and, and it was like, well, this didn't work out at all. <laughs> The Mets don't win the World Series. I don't get to write a book. And um, it was nice to win the pen. It was nice to have this conversation uh, with the nice folks at Skyhorse. But I guess this is over. And uh, went home, wrote about uh, Game 5 on the blog, commiserated with our readers, and took a long nap. <laughs> and the next day, uh, I got a call saying, eh, what the hell, let's write a book about the Mets winning the pennant. And uh, I said, I, I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, there was no parade to worry about, unfortunately. And I had a little more time, which was nice, and a little more space with which to tell the story of the 2015 Mets, which, as I dove back into it, I mean, it wasn't exactly ancient history, <laughs> just taken place, but you, know, you forget things after 162 games and three rounds of playoffs. It was a probably a more fascinating season than I realized while I was in the middle of it. And I hope that it shows through in, in Amazing again. And so you mentioned something. Well, what, let me, before we get to that, when did you then have to get the actual book? Uh, early December. So, okay. and I, that was like, I probably took three or four days past my deadline, but I don't think any writer doesn't. But, um, you know, I had basically, well, that was the funny thing about this off season. I never had an off season in my mind. Because it kept being 2015 for me, which except for five games at the end was a great thing. 
I got to relive the whole season, and you know, with page proofs and things like that, it got to be January before I was right. done, and then caught my breath, and they signed Cespedes, and then a blizzard happened, and then it was spring training. <laughs> so, you know, no off-season, which is, why the hell does anybody want an off-season? Yes. So there's never an off-season in the, in the clubhouse here, and uh, in my mind, there wasn't either. So, uh, so I had an extra few weeks, and I uh, got to hone it, and uh, got to make it a, uh, hopefully, a better story. Well, thanks to the Skyhorse folks for, uh, or sport, is it sports publishing or Skyhorse? I want to make sure sports I get... Sports publishing is an imprint of Skyhorse. Okay, well, thanks to both for, uh, for making sure that this book came out regardless of what happened in those few games. You, you mentioned something, just a question. You said that Game 3 in the World Series was your first World Series game. Ever? That I've ever attended, yeah. But what was that like? That was like going to a regular game, but more so. Uh, it was just everything was enhanced about it. As soon as you stepped off the train, well, hell, as soon as you stepped on the train, really, because you know you're. It's a, it was a Friday night, and you know sometimes you're on a. Depending on how big a game it is, you're, there are other Mets fans. I mean, I come from Long Island. I go to Jamaica. I change to Jamaica for Woodside. I get on a number seven train usually. Go back to City Field, and you know it's mostly people coming home from work or going to the city and a handful of Mets fans. It's like everybody was into it. And you know, chanting "Let's go Mets" and that sort of thing, and high-fiving each other, and just you know, I would funny like I couldn't help myself. I just went up to strangers and started talking to them, and I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a, there was a woman in that little if if you're familiar with the uh, the Seven Line Station at City Field, you know, you know that like little place you walk through to get down to the stairs. There was a woman wearing this, what, what I call a trainer's jacket, this white satin starter jacket. Used, the only person you used to see wearing it on the Mets was the trainer, uh, <laughs> uh, Tom McKenna, uh, Gus Moth, before him. <laughs> well, this was still around. They were using it, I guess, for the, uh, for the ball girls, circa the uh, late 80s. And in 1989, I got engaged to be married, and I got two things from my wife, from my prospective fiance at the time. One was an engagement ring, which anybody could buy. And one was one of those trainer jackets, <laughs> which was not easy to find. And, um, and I haven't seen too many people wearing one, including my wife lately. But um, I see a woman who looks a little bit like my wife, for what it was worth. So I just go up to her, you know, you've got the same jacket. I get it. <laughs> okay, so just to fast forward to whenever this happened, I think it was BuzzFeed uh, had a thing that said, like, we talked to 23 people outside City Field before the World Series, and they do this thing where they have them holding up signs writing their feelings or whatever, and th there was this woman wearing that jacket. Says, a man came up to me and said, I'm wearing the same jacket he gave his wife when they got engaged. So it was just, there was just so much going on. It was like, a, it was like, I mean, it was probably like what the Super Bowl is like, except it was crammed into to like one small area and it wasn't, you know, it's not the NFL, so it wasn't that big a deal, but it was just like, you know, I think in, in this day and age where, you know, let's face it, like, except in places like this, baseball may not be the overwhelming national pastime it once was, but the World Series is still the World Series. And I think that's one of the things that made it exciting, not just being at City Field. This is all before I got inside City Field, mind you. But uh, ju just the, the, the general sense, and I wrote about this a little bit in the book of, you know, walking around town, uh, both you know, in, in Manhattan, on, on Long Island where I live, People were suddenly wearing Met jackets and wearing Met caps. They had signs in their, their windows. They had flags in their yards. I had never seen this. I mean, even 
in 86, it wasn't quite as, the merchandise just didn't exist as much back then. So it, it was just this fantastic film. I think it was, it, you know, again, the Mets had been in the playoffs the week before, but the playoffs are something that baseball fans know about. The World Series is still something everybody knows about. It still has brand equity. So and I, you know, right before I, I came home and, and got the message to call the publisher, um, I had been to the dentist, who I'd been going to for years, walking and wearing a med jacket, and never having any kind of conversation. It's, and they all like assaulted me with, isn't this great? Isn't this the most wonderful thing? Oh, you wore your jacket. That's fantastic. Where, where were you like three months ago when I was having my cleaning? So, um, but that's that, that to me. I mean, that's some people say, oh, bandwagon. I'm like, bring the bandwagon on. We, I want more people to enjoy this. And I think that's that's what the World Series was. And that's what it was outside the ballpark, inside the ballpark. You know, except for the fact that like every between innings break was like way too long for TV. Um, it was just, you know, nobody could contain themselves. There was actually a moment where game three, because I, I've been to a few playoff games and I think Met fans were just holding it in for, 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 I guess, the last nine years, especially in the City Field era where nothing happened, basically. <laughs> and it was so over the top in terms of the noise and the excitement and everything I never thought City Field could be. I remember, like, just in game three, the Royals had taken a brief lead, and I was, I was sort of uh, panicking isn't the right word. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that pathetic. But, but I, was, <laughs> I was concerned that uh, I needed to shake things up, and I was just feeling the pressure of all this noise. Like, I had to get up, and I, I, must want, I must want to go up to the upper deck. I was fortunate to be in, I was in the left field field level. I want to go up to the upper deck, the promenade, as they call it, and, like, kind of find a September 2014 type of game where there's like <laughs> literally, there were, I was like at a game the year before where there were literally six people in my section. When I say my section, 17 rows, you know, about 20 seats across, and I counted six people. And I went and, you know, I just had to get away from my seat and kind of like, okay, let's, maybe this will change the luck, maybe I'll calm down. I came back, Granderson hit a home run, and, um, uh, you know, they... Who was it? Jordano Ventura, I think he was the pitcher. Anyway, we won. It was a great night, and it was a lot better than the next night when they lost. But uh, just a, a great thing, and I'm really glad that after, uh, I guess it was full, my, that was my 47th season, and the first time I ever got to go to a World Series game. So, uh, yay. <laughs> well, actually, you just said something that is something you write about in the book. So if you could just speak about that a little bit. You just said, we won. <laughs> and in the book, you speak about that, write about that, if you could just talk a little about that, about sure. we. Sure, uh, one of the caveats I put up front in this book is my tendency to fall in and out of the first person plural. <laughs> uh, and I think that probably differentiates this book from, I don't know that there are any other 2015 Met books out there, but there probably would have been if they'd won the World Series, but um, you know, if you were reading an account by somebody like Adam Rubin, who I think is a terrific reporter for ESPN, or uh, any of the other beat writers, or you know anybody who didn't come at it as a fan, you would not read "We." We won. We lost. We beat the Nationals. We picked up a game. Whatever. And I just kind of thought, you know what? I wouldn't be writing about this if I weren't a Mets fan. And certainly, if if I was assigned to go write about the, the giant Royal World Series from the year before, I would not say we. Um, but this was, while it's not an in, intensely personal book by any means, I can't talk about the Mets for the most part. You know, 
I can if I have to, and I've written in that way. But I'd not feel comfortable for 60,000 words pretending to be an objective, detached voice. I mean, I don't say, like, we're great, we never lose, or anything like that. But uh, I think we is honest. And, you know, my, my partner, Jason, and I, doing the blog, have always done it like that. Now and then you get a, a little pushback. People say, you know, you're not on the team. Or, <laughs> you know, I, I, or, you know, when the, um, the Rams moved from St. Louis back to L.A., you know, I remember reading, hey, now you feel stupid for saying we, right, Rams fans in St. Louis? Because, you know, you're not we. They're going to take your team away from you eventually. And no fan should feel safe. And what fun is that? So... <laughs> Again, while I'm not crazy and I don't think I do anything to, uh, to move the runner from first to second with less than two out or anything like that, uh, I say we because that's just, you live as a fan, you feel it. And I think it makes it more fun. How, how many games uh, do you go to on it? Well, last year or in a typical year? Uh, you know, since City Field is open, I've been fortunate enough to get like you know, 25, 30 a year. And people always ask the next question, oh, do you have, do you have a ticket plan. Do you have season tickets? No. Um, I'll let you guys in on a secret. When you become known to people as a big Mets fan, people <laughs> let you know when they have extra tickets. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, I'm not exactly, depending on the kindness of strangers exactly, <laughs> but um, it just kind of happens. I might buy a few tickets here and there. I had a, I'll, I'll tell the story here. I promised them I wouldn't blog about it, but I'm not blogging. I'm just talking into exactly. a microphone. Um, <laughs> Last August, on a day where I guess I had nothing else to do, or I was not particularly diligent in doing the things I had to do, I had had a call from the Mets ticket department. Like, hey, we would, they, and they call like once a year. I'm on a list from, from as I'm sure many people in this room are. Like, we want to, you know, Greg, we want to get you out to the ballpark. You know, we want to interest you in a plan. And, and my, I said, oh, sure, I'll come out and look around. I had no intention of <laughs> signing up for season tickets. I probably... The idea, and again, they were really pushing it. This was just as they were taken off, so they wanted to use the cudgel of, you don't want to miss the postseason, do you? <laughs> and, um, and I knew I wasn't going to, but I thought, you know, this might be fun to kind of, kind of as the quasi-ombudsman for the Mets fan sometimes, like, let's see what it's like. And maybe I'll write it. Well, I show up, and they have two guys assigned to show me around, and one of them says, uh, we, we understand you write a blog, and um, like, that's really cool, but like, you're not going to write about this. No, I won't write about it, so... <laughs> so I've kept it to myself, but they just, you know, and, and they're just like, so how many games do you go to? Cause, and I said, oh, you know, 25, 30. Oh, wow. It's, so, it's like, yeah, you, buy, you buy individual tickets. I must have, oh, you know, people. And I said the same thing. You know, people give you your nice, I have friends, whatever. I go in on tickets with them. And they just kind of like kept pounding at it and kept pounding at it. And like, oh, you know, your wife, maybe your wife wants to see the Red Sox series. Like, oh, I doesn't give a damn about the Red Sox. What's a Mets fan? What are you going to do your mind? <laughs> Just like, and then they got it down to a point where, like, they had to, like, go into every orifice of their sales pitch. Uh, Jay and I were talking about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross before we, we started here, and it was a little bit like that. And I actually really admire it because I don't I don't sell hard enough, I find. But uh, this guy's like, you know, you know, some people come with groups. They come with groups from their uh, their, their civic groups, their houses of worship. Greg, Greg where do you worship? <laughs> and I was just like, I'm mad at myself because I got very offended. Like, you know, you shouldn't ask me. What I should have said was, I worship at City Field, <laughs> seven ten tonight. But uh, I didn't think to do that. And what really got me was, you know, again, making small talk with the guys. They started to give me the big tour. Uh, and again, they did, they did their job. I'm not, I don't mean to put them down. But, but uh, 
they just asked, oh, what other ballparks you've been to? And I was just, you know, talking about this bar. Or what, I think the subject was what, what ballparks that are no longer in use have you been to? And I just, you know, was rattling some of them off. And I mentioned Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego. And I don't think I have to tell too many people the, the Met connection to Jack Murphy, which is that his brother, Bob Murphy, was the announcer for the Met. I'm going for 42 seasons. And so some of us will always be the voice of the Mets. And I said something like, oh, Jack Murphy. Well, you know, I have to tell you, you know, the significance of that, I don't know exactly how I framed it, but the guy just stared at me because he'd, <laughs> he'd been working for the Mets for two months and, you know, he wasn't from New Stan York. Murphy's brother. Yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, Jack Murphy, Bob Murphy's brother, Bob Murphy, and I did not know who Bob Murphy was. And he works for the Mets and he deals with the public and he deals with people who might theoretically be wanting to put down money and buying tickets. I'm like, oh God, this is so sad. But those are the sorts of thoughts, to be honest, those are the sorts of thoughts I regularly had about the Mets until this fall. Now they can do no wrong in my mind. <laughs> well, at least for the moment. Yeah, anyway. yeah this, is a, this is odd, isn't it? Yeah. That... <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's funny because I was, I, I, I was speaking a little bit about this before, but it, it, it strikes me the way, the way you are, the way you write. You don't have my cynicism, and you'd also, on the other end of the spectrum, you don't have... I don't want to give away. We're probably about the same age, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You don't. You're not a guy in your fifties who has the view of an eight-year-old that a team can't do anything wrong. You know, it's great for Brody. You you should feel the Mets can do no wrong. <laughs> believe me, they're great. I they're do not perfect. Raise him that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should believe that now. But when you're your dad's age, don't 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 think like that. You know. And you you somehow can. You, you get into that real sweet spot and, and the way you write about that, oh, and it, it, it comes across. I, I think it's because there are 162 games and you can't kid yourself. <laughs> uh, if the Mets are, are winning, it, it is a great feeling, but you know at some point they're gonna lose. And if the Mets are losing, it's a horrible feeling and you're convinced it's never gonna end. But then you tell yourself, you know, and then there was a moment last year when they, they had a, their longest losing streak of the year. It was seven losses in a row and all of the good vibes from the great start were melting away. And this was during that trip where they scored nine runs in seven games. And it's not a, it's not a chapter that I spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was, and again, when, when you write a blog like ours, you know, we have a comment section. We have the best commenters, I am convinced, in all of the whole internet, because most comment sections you don't want to spend more than about two seconds in. But ours are, are, are good, good people, and, and they're mature, and they, they don't use foul language. And they weren't being idiots. You know, they were like, nothing's ever, oh my god, the season is, and I can't even say they were being idiots, because it was actually a pretty rational uh, <laughs> conclusion. But I remember writing, uh, either right before the seventh consecutive loss, or right on the eve of the win, the, the, the win that snapped that losing streak, you know what, the Mets are gonna win again. They're going to win a game again. <laughs> And that was as, as far as I would, will go in terms of making predictions, but you know, we're not going to have what, however many games were left at that point in the season. You know, we're not going to lose 90 in a row. So, you know, some days they're, they're, they're good, and you take it with a grain of salt, and some days they're horrible, and you remember that the sun will come out tomorrow. It's good to remember. I don't always act that way. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. write that way. Uh, well, I, I have more questions, but my guess is some of the Met fans here may. So who wants to uh, lead off? Uh, who is your favorite Met and why? Ever or now? Now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I haven't really had a favorite Met since Jose Reyes. Uh, in fact, I probably spent like two years mourning the loss of Jose Reyes to Miami and then Toronto. 
Um, this is pre, uh, pre, pre jail. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now I feel kind of uh, not that attached to Jose. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm hoping they'll say, "Oh, it was a big, it was a big misunderstanding." And, but uh, you know, don't 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 fall in love with uh, human beings, I suppose. But anyway, um, I came out of the World Series really loving Noah Syndergaard. Yeah. I love the way he started Game Three, the, my first World Series game. So I'll always have that. I love the talk after Game Three. It was. You know, it was confident to the point of cockiness, which I guess you're not supposed to, you know, do. But uh, you know, what is that line from Bull Durham? Announce your presence with authority. <laughs> he's just, he's just so much fun to watch and fun to listen to. And he, you know, the fact that he, he was, you know, Jonas Cespedes' sidekick on the horse and <laughs> show, showing up in the off season, like. If you saw those pictures where he like plopped himself down in the middle of uh, MetLife Stadium and Barclays Center and the Garden everywhere else, so. I kind of dig him, but I mean, this, this, that, you know what's great about this? This team, there's nobody I don't like, because you know, inevitably, there's that guy you just sort of like, oh God, here comes Danny Heap. Yeah, you know, Danny Heap. For for those who are wondering why, yeah, well, we we could go all night with that, unfortunately. <laughs> but just, just as an aside, uh, the reason uh, my friend Sam here mentioned Danny Heap years ago it was ten years ago. Actually, it was the twentieth anniversary of the Mets having won the World Series. Now we're up to the thirtieth. Um, <laughs> I did a series on our blog, which has been around a long time now, looking back at 86, and I did a piece on who was my least favorite 86 Met, because who in their right mind has a least favorite 86 Met? They're the greatest team ever. And I, I realized, you know what? I just didn't really care for Danny Heap that much. <laughs> and my mother, who, who had become a big Mets fan in those years, uh, like really had it in for Danny Heap. And I just remember, like, every time he came up to bat, like, oh, he... She used a Yiddish expression. He looks like a dunner. <laughs> Just not that guy. <laughs> you know, he was a and I think you know, the overarching point of my piece was, you know, Danny Heap was okay by me, but if I had to pick somebody, like that's how good the 86 Mets were. Um, anyway, just, just as a, as a uh, coda, um, a couple of months later, out of nowhere, I think it was because they just had the 86 reunion, somebody left a comment on that piece just telling me to go bleep myself. Who am I to put down Danny Heap? <laughs> Danny Heap is a world champion and you're nuts. So, you know what, point taken. So anyway. But Noah Syndergaard. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, let me, let me just get Bernie here. Um, so, like, Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to put it because I, I think it had been building. Well, if, if you were at the Stephen Matz game as I was, that was, yeah, I mean, that was a really long day. I don't know how long you guys stayed. Yeah, because they were doing a suspended game that went 14 right. innings, and then you had the nine innings, and then you had a Steve Miller Band concert, if, if, you, if you're up for that, which I was. It's a long, long day at the ballpark. But I, I remember that day being very exciting, and it was it stuck out because not that many Met games had that kind of excitement to it, and it was building from that was late June, and by August when the Mets went into the first place, 
it got more exciting to be at City Field. So by October, uh, all those postseason games, I think just, again, people were just ready to you know, jump out of their chairs and, and yell a lot. So it was, it, was a great, um, it was a great atmosphere. I'm glad you got to experience it. I hope you get to experience it every October. <laughs> anyway, yes, sir. Zach Wheeler and Wilmer Flores for Carlos Gomez. Now we would say, what were they thinking? Horrible idea. Um, for three hours or four hours on that Wednesday night, I know with my friends, we were back and forth, some pro, some con about uh, about that trade. What was your thoughts for a few hours that Wednesday well, night? Well, I was fortunate enough to be at the ballpark that night. Um, I had a different phone than I do now, and it was sort of sporadic, so I'm, I was on the habit of checking it like a lot of people are, but I, you know, I'm still a, a person who lives in the 21st century, and unfortunately I did this. And I said, hey, I said to my friend, hey, <laughs> We just got Carlos Gomez. <laughs> and we were all like, oh, I'm like, ah, that's great. Uh, who did we give up? Um, and it was like, okay, Wilmer Flores. Well, I'm not that attached to Wilmer Flores. And Zach Wheeler. Oh, yeah, we still have Zach Wheeler. <laughs> and again, this was the, the tail end of the, the Mets can score. So I was excited for, you know, those 20 minutes of Carlos Gomez 2.0 coming back to the Mets. And I, you know, always liked, you know, liked him when he first came up and, Know, saw him develop as a Milwaukee Brewer. I sat in center field one night where he was just like being really cool with the fans, throwing balls back and forth, and thought, like, God, it's too bad we never had got, got him back. And that we did, yeah, this is great. And when Wilmer Flores came up to bat, my friend and I just said, like, you know, but we didn't have to say anything. We just like, you know, stood up and started applauding because, you know, it just seemed, you know, use the word mensch before. It seemed like the menchy thing to do. You know, the guy is being traded. And it was also like a little thing in the back of my head was like, why is he still in the game if <laughs> he's being traded? But, you know, again, I, I just want to point out that, that most of the accounts of this say that the entire stadium was on its feet. <laughs> a lot of people had no idea this was going on. A lot of people weren't on their feet. Not everybody looks at their phone, despite what I just said. And it was just like, yay, Wilmer Flores, nice, nice going. Thank you for your service, and um, good luck. And where's Carlos Gomez? Get him here. <laughs> and then, you know, he comes out to play shortstop in the next inning, and it's like, why is he still in the game? <laughs> and then, you know, we, we were fortunate. We were sitting in the um, Excelsior level, out first base right field, and you have monitors there. And so what I couldn't have possibly told on the field, but I saw the close-ups, the, the little bits of tears and I quickly put on Howie and Josh on the radio and they're talking about it and I'm looking at the phone and then it's like oh, uh, turns out he's not traded he's crying and he's like what the hell is going on with this team and and then like the whole way back you know at home I'm reading about you know Alderson is making angry statements and Collins is like why aren't people watching the game what is this with phones and, which is perfect for him <laughs> And in the middle of all this, you'll remember, you know, Lucas did hit three home runs. <laughs> and nobody cared because the Mets were, you know, three solo home runs. They had already, like, given up seven runs. And it was just a bizarre thing. And not, not to give, give away, because there is a chapter devoted to this uh, episode. Um, I was back the next afternoon, which was a noon start. Ugh. And it was like, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is going to be a strange day. And the Mets had a nice, nice big lead, seven to one. Nice had pitched okay. <laughs> And then, of course, you know, it was like, super hot, and it got dark, and it was Hansel Robles and Bobby Parnell had combined to give up a grand slam, and seven to five, but that's okay, because we're going to get these last outs, Familia's coming in, Familia's golden, and, and of course, it's dark, you know, the rain is horrible, and they have to 
bring the tarp on the field, and we're like, oh God, you know. And there's like, it was camp day also, so kids who were, uh, were, were who were your age and a little older were shrieking like madmen and, and mad women. And it was just a again, you know, I was talking before about just ah, am I going to lose my mind? Anyway, the place, you know, the thunder passes, the lightning passes, most everybody left. It was even. Even emptier than it was for the Steve Miller concert, and, <laughs> but that's okay, man. Let's just get it. Let's get that last out, Juris, and let's go home. And well, <laughs> guy gets on, another guy gets on. Guy hits a home run. It's eight to seven. The rains come down. It's like my friend who was just—I I write about him in the book. His name is Joe. A guy I've been friends with for a quarter century. Just a wonderful, gentle soul who very intently keeps score at games, and then he. Tell he keeps score of he, he keeps track of every game he's ever kept score of so he can tell me how Tim Bogart batted for him <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> he's a great he's a great guy, and he's usually zoned in. And when this happened, he walks over. There's a, a craft beer cart, and it's not far from where we were standing, where we were watching because we weren't the seats were wet. He goes over and he punches the hell out of him. <laughs> like Joe. Let's get out of here. And he's like, I'm going with you because Joe never leaves one of those people. But we left and. Three hours, like two and a half, three hours more, and I was home to watch Jesus. the last out. Uh, you know, the Mets make the last three outs in about thirty seconds, and and everybody had the same thought. That's the thing about the internet; like, you never have a you have to work really hard to have an original thought anymore because everybody thinks and tweets it at the same time. Which was this has got to be the worst twenty-four hours in Mets history. Of which, of course, you know, they traded Tom Seaver, and there was a, that was part of a 24-hour <laughs> And, you know, other things have happened, so... Don't forget, Kingman left that day, well, Sure, but I, Yes, Sam, I've forgotten. Thank you for... <laughs> but uh, the, point, the point being that, um, yeah, Wheeler and Flores for Gomez uh, seem like an okay deal and might not have been in the long run. We didn't have to worry about it, as it turned out. And then, of course, <laughs> Everything changes. All the clouds went away a day later. Uh, trade deadline, like 10 to 4, we learn about Joannis Espes. And I don't care if Michael Fulmer goes on and wins 300 games for the Tigers. <laughs> Bless him. I don't care. <laughs> it was a great move, and uh, it turned everything around. So, yeah. Speaking so, uh, book addendum to Florida. First, thank you for Fulmer. I'm loving him already. Good luck. Look at Denton for the uh, Florida trip. I have to be in Miami at Marlins Park like two weeks after that. And that's normally City Field South anyways, but mm -hmm. every single time Florida got to, to the uh, plate, the entire place stood up and applauded for him. It was amazing. Like, it was a traveling road show of let's just lionize this poor kid. Um, but what the hell happened with Mejia? Can you give me some insight? Is it, is it addiction stuff? Is it pure just... Ignorance? I, I would just be speculating, so I, I, have no, I, I say up front of the book, I, ha, I have no inside information. I love to see a fan. Uh, just from here, it seems like, are you out of your mind, kid? Um, <laughs> Henry Mejia was their closer the year before. I think it's easy to forget because Familia was, with the exception of a couple of bumps, really good closer last year. And Mejia was that guy the year before, a little, a little less, he was a little more shaky, let's put it that way. But you know, he got the job done, and he was part of the. And again, he seemed like you know, I had one interaction with him as a, uh, a blogger. Occasionally, the Mets reach out to folks like us and invite us to kind of have you know have media credentials. I, I call it high school newspaper night. We're not, really, we're not really media, but they sort of treat us as we are. And I, I once went to a high school newspaper night in the years of Richie Hebner and Joel Youngblood and so forth. Um, the point here being that the last thing I'd gone to was they, they throw a big Christmas party for kids. And we got to cover it. And you know, there's a curse of Santa Claus 
where the Mets are concerned, which is everybody who plays Santa Claus eventually, like pretty soon they get traded, they go into a slump. Uh, Henry McGee was Santa Claus in 2014. But he was such a sweetheart. He was so good with the kids. And he said, you know, again, you know, the reporters had their chance to talk to him afterwards. Like, you know, do you, because they were, you know, at that time it was like Bobby Parnell is coming back. He's going to be the closer. You're going to be the eighth inning guy. What do you think? I'll do anything they ask. I'm happy to be here. I love being Santa Claus. And then he gets suspended once and then twice. And then three to the third time isn't in the book, but it's, uh, I don't know what he was thinking, and I don't. I really wanted to believe the first time that maybe he took something by accident, because you know, guys who were sort of turned out to be bad apples, I tend to like want to make every rationalization in the world for them. I'm drawn to sort of. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Pee Wee's Big Adventure, you know, I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a loner, Dottie. You don't want anything to do with me. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm bad news. I'm drawn. I was drawn. To, I was drawn to Jordani Valdes being. <laughs> so um, anyway, the point is, I have no idea, but I'm sorry it happened. I hope he gets his life together. Yeah. So I am firmly in the camp of you know a Mets fan who, no matter how well things are going, is simply a matter of seconds before it's going to fall apart. And I live my life that way and try to, despite their success, raise him that way. <laughs> but you know, so you watch the first half of the season, you know, and at some point I remember watching Degrom, and you know, after he lost several one nothing, two one games, and there was one game and zero zero, I think in the fourth or fifth, and ball up the middle that Flores boots. And you can pretty much there in fifth and game's over and you can see the look on DeGrom's face. And you're like, every one of these players <coughs> going out there at 22 or DeGrom's 27, but knowing your margin of error is mm -hmm. this and thinking, you know, what is standing going to do? Are they really going to waste this pitching staff and finish in second or third place? And uh, I was at the Kershaw game where they batted, we had Mayberry and Campbell. You know, I remember texting my friends, I'm like, I'm watching the Mets and there are five players under 200 in the starting lineup. Mm -hmm. And I forget who was pitching that, but it was Go actually on. a pitcher's <laughs> duel and yeah. Kershaw threw a six no hitter into the seventh. Mm -hmm. And then to me, the turning point of the season, not the Cespedes deal, but when he trades for Uribe and Kelly Johnson, and you all of a sudden go from Eric Campbell and John Mayberry to Uribe now. And I remember listening to the radio when it was Francesca, who was not related to him, I'm not a fan. But he's bashing the trades, typical Mets, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, we've got this amazing staff. You just went from two people who really shouldn't be, well, at least John Mayberry probably shouldn't be in baseball anymore, to two people who are solid veterans. Are comp I mean, To me, they were competent baseball players. The feel of the team changes. You know, Then Cespedes comes on. And the longer saying, Alderson gets a lot of credit. But I don't even think he gets enough credit for the little moves he made that John Uribe made. Tyler Clifford until he fell apart at the end. Mm -hmm. um, you know Addison Reed. There were a lot of pieces where he rebuilt that squad and filled in the holes in a short period yeah. of time that were really impressive yeah. without gutting the system. I mean, God bless Michael Fulmer. He was never going to start for the Mets. I mean, there's several other guys who are mm -hmm. even behind the five we have, and it's that. Yeah, I think. Well, it really, you know, that was and it's also in the book, but there, you know, a real turning point of the season was that, you know, Mayberry and Campbell batting fourth and fifth and Wrecker batting 170 and I mean, Cologne was, you know, batting obviously in the 100s, I forget who else. But um, the next night, you had Michael Conforto come up. And that was, you know, something that, you know, they were loath to do. But said, okay, this is a reality check. And, you know, again, you can say, why the hell didn't they do this two weeks earlier? Because, like, you know, one of the themes on, on our blog over here was, like, why don't they get some help? And all we're not talking about bringing in Yoenis Espinus in May was, can't you find a, a 
you know, a backup infielder who can hit. Guys like that. Yeah, uh, Johnson and Uribe were perfect for that team, perfect for that moment. And, you know, you're talking about from, in an eight-day span, five guys, uh, that's, what, 20% of your World Series roster that weren't on the team. And then you throw in Addison Reed, so, you know, that's six guys who weren't even there, were not in their, on their radar. I'm sure Conforto was not on their minds until this year, at the very earliest. And we're still waiting for Brandon Nimmo, for God's sake. So, um, <laughs> you know, although I have to say, last year definitely turned me around, uh, turned around, it wasn't a 180, but I, mean, I was getting impatient with Alderson, impatient with Collins, impatient with everybody and everything. And um, you know what? It paid off, it worked. I think they got some breaks. I think the Nationals, you know, imploded. The Mets were never more than four and a half behind, but you know what, that's okay. That's, you play who you play. And, you know, you don't have 15 teams contending every year. So I think uh, the stars align. Yeah, back. Yes. Uh, did you find in your research in this book, was there anybody on the team or within the organization that came out critical of Terry Collins' ultimate decision to leave Harvey? Um, I'm not talking, I, I know, you know, after the game, they were all unified. Yeah. Yes, we left the man. It was the right move. We backed up our players. Back to the press. I haven't, I haven't seen that again. I, you know, I write this as a fan, so I wasn't, you know, calling my sources or anything like that. One of the things that's, that's I think, has been remarkable about the Terry Collins era, and it is an era at this point. If he serves out his contract, he will be the longest tenured Met manager ever, longer than Davey and Bobby V, you know, everybody, which is shocking. <laughs> but um, one of the great things about the Terry Collins era is you never read blind quotes or for that matter, hardly ever an attributed quote. Maybe once in a while a relief pitcher is a little annoyed how he's used, but that's it. There's no, like, I don't know what this guy is thinking. You know, if you, if you can remember back, uh, you know, the old Oakland A's in, in their dynasty years, I, I always go back to this quote. Uh, I want to say it was, I think it was Ken Holtzman said about Alvin Dark. He couldn't manage a meat market. <laughs> I mean, this is what guys were going on record saying about their managers. And, you know, you certainly had grumbling of somebody like Bobby Valentine and Jerry Manuel and so forth. Never with Collins, because I think he manages the players more than he manages the game. And that's a great thing in the long haul. It may not be a great thing in the moment, like that ninth inning. Personally, I think he was kind of rocking a hard place in that ninth inning. You really, you know, listen, I, I think most fans look at a starting pitcher having that kind of a game and say, I want him to go out there. Why would you take him out? And then, you know, you got a chance to kind of step back and say, well, you know, he's not that good. Uh, you know, the third time, fourth time around the lineup, he, some balls were getting hard hit in the eighth inning. But, you know, you, the, the one thing I think I, I, I had a problem with a little bit, I think he overused Clippard and Familia when he didn't have to, like with seven run leads. <laughs> uh, just, again, I think it was just that, that met insecurity, like, <laughs> we're nailing this down. I don't care what it takes. <laughs> Probably took its toll, but... He got them there, so. Uh, but no, to answer your question, I have I haven't read or I haven't spoken to anybody, so I don't know. Yeah, um, Adam. Uh, do you think the Mets' defense will be their biggest Achilles heel this year? I hope they have no Achilles. <laughs> 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 um, defense, I don't think it's terrible. I have to really stop and think about it, but I, mean, I think, unlike Flores and Murphy, who again both did great things last year at bat and they you know, worked real hard to make themselves into a shortstop and second baseman. Um, I'm glad to have a real shortstop in Astrobel Cabrera and a real second baseman in Neil Walker. So 
Uh, I think that solves a lot. I'm very interested to see what a healthy Darno can do. I know his throwing wasn't very good in the World Series, but I think he's a good catcher. And Duda is a perfectly good first baseman, throw to home plate notwithstanding. You know, it'll be interesting to see how many games Wright plays. It'll be interesting to see what say. I mean, Cespedes has the tools to do everything, but we've seen him blank out in center field. Granderson's a real good right fielder except for his arm. And uh, Conforto, I think we're, he's still learning. So it's not terrible. It's just not awesome. Back. I'm afraid to ask this question. Who was Santa Claus this year? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Yeah. Who was it? Oh God! Well, yeah, Walker. Yeah, he was an elf. Well, he was there. Walker was an elf. You and Heist was the elf, and they Oh, was it was it was it, was it Thor? <laughs> <laughs> was Flores it, was it Flores? No, it wasn't Flores. Was it Syndergaard? Sure Walker's got a one-year Yeah, as long as he makes it to opening day. Let's. I, you know, it, it might have been John Franco, actually. They kind of. <laughs> let's say it was. Let's say it was. Because because the the year R. A. Dickey was, if you remember, there was like a whole just before he got traded. He showed up at the Christmas party. I was, I was there for that in, in my my, my blogger capacity, and he was. They were like negotiating an extension at the time, and it was clear to to me that he was like kind of talking his way out of town at that point. And as it happened, yeah. But we we got a nice deal. Got, got a nice guy. Oh, it was Matt. Okay. Oh God, I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna miss Stephen Matt. <laughs> but anyway, the point the point of all of this is that. When the Mets don't have anybody else, they throw Franco in there. So, but we know, no, it was another left-hander. So, I'll miss Steve Matz. Yes, for um, that you get the floor. <laughs> you, uh, you said earlier that you know the season of 162 games really long, and looking back when you were writing the book, that a few things may have slipped your mind um, from the season, you know, earlier or whatever. You know, when doing the research, uh, you know, however research, much research you needed, um, what was the one thing that you saw? You're like, wow, I forgot that that, that was. Um, I think the thing that really needed emphasizing, and I might not have thought about it if I wasn't writing a book, was the period after they bottomed out, but before they took off. And then by bottomed out, I mean the seven-game losing streak fall below 500 in late June. You know, they have the, the wonderful Red Series with Steven Matz. And they get swept by the Cubs, which I think was the bottoming out period. Because if you remember the Cubs series, the end of June, the beginning of July, City Field, they scored one run in three games. And I, I don't think they were using John Mabry and Eric Campbell as, uh, as clean hitters then, but they were still kind of screwed. I, I was at two of those games, and just it was just deadly. And I remember being, I actually remember getting, I was talking about coming on the, on the train and being full of Mets fans. This was the opposite. The, the afternoon finale was me and like a few Cub fans. <laughs> and it's like, they were just talking about the Cubs and talking about life in Chicago. <laughs> and it's like, this is horrible. I hate City Field. I hate the I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I had that. I go through that a few times a year. <laughs> but um, if you remember, the next, their next stop was a, a trip to LA and San Francisco. And there was a lot of doomsaying ahead of that because they're going to go face Kershaw and Granke facing uh, two teams that were vying for first place, a defending world champion, a team that was you know, very on its way to the playoffs, and the Mets had had horrible West Coast road trips in recent years, and it was all just waiting to go down the tubes, and it didn't. Two and one in LA, two and one in San Francisco, uh, you know, big hits from people like Johnny Manel and Michael Kadir, who I shouldn't be putting in the same sentence, I suppose, but he was very slump. <laughs> New and Heights, who would, you know, been left for dead and released, and now he was back, the proverbial bad penny, and he had a, a big hit. DeGrom had another great game. They come home and they sweep Arizona. 
Neuenheit hits three home runs, the first, first guy to ever do that in a Met home game as a Met. And suddenly, they, you know what? For all the trouble they've been in, they're like one game back at the break. And, and then they had like a, a couple of big series that didn't go their way, but they, they won just enough after the All-Star break. So I think that period, which I think is kind of glossed over in, in most retellings, was really crucial that they did not fall apart. And I enjoyed diving back into that. So what, what's your over-under for victory this year, and what's oh, your expectation? Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm going with 0-0 entering the season. But, um, <laughs> somebody actually, I, a, a Cardinal blog, actually, they, they pulled a bunch of Met bloggers. They like to do um, season previews of all the teams. And I just pulled a number out of the air. I said 94 wins, because <laughs> I want to be optimistic. I have no, I said 84 last year, and they had 90, so um, grain of salt. Hopefully they have six more this year as well. I'll take that. Yes, sir. Just curious, uh, the way the world is changing. How do you see the difference between being a blogger about baseball and a sports writer? Uh, I think it de depends who you're working for. Um, I'll use Adam Rubin as an example. Adam Rubin used to be the beat writer for the Daily News. The uh, ESPN decided to beef up their city by city coverage. He went over to ESPN. He does the same job except more of it. He is every bit, you know, the baseball beat writer, the guy who, the, no, actually, it's a woman who does it for the Daily News, Christy Ackert, and those who do it for the Post and for Newsday and the Times and so forth. But he doesn't print anything. He writes a blog, basically. But his is, like, constant. Um, so in my case, I'm more likely to say blogger than sports writer, because sports writer indicates, you know, you're, you're doing it for a livelihood. You work for somebody. And there are people who like show up in press boxes. I don't know who they, and I don't mean this in a, in a critical way, but kind of like, I don't know who they're working for exactly. I think there's just like these people who kind of hang around and like sell articles to weeklies. So if they can do it, great. But I mean, my, my friend Jason and I went into this as fans who wanted to write about the Mets because for 10 years before we started the blog, we wrote to each other uh, in the, uh, the advent of email and posted on boards and stuff. So it's nice getting those credentials now and again, but I don't have like an editor who's breathing down my neck for the story after the game. It's uh, something that uh, we do because we love it and things like this come out of it sometimes and that's great. So, you know, it, it is to answer your question, I, I, I think the line blurs more every day, but um, I'm, I'm not a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America or whatever that is, so take, take that for what it's worth. Yes. Is there going to be a uh, sequel or sequels to the Happiest Recap? Uh, thank you for asking. Um, yes. Um, long story short, uh, the fella I worked with in putting that together was unavailable to do it uh, with me. And it took me a while to accept that. So I have recently found somebody else to work with, uh, graphics and stuff like that, and hope to be able to announce soon that we're gonna, uh, volume two. For those of you who don't know the Happiest Recap uh, project, uh, 500 most amazing, or 500 amazing games, I don't wanna say most, in Mets history. It's pegged to the 50th anniversary, which is already a few years gone, so forget about that. But um, I put out, under my own imprint, uh, a first volume a few years ago, and have a second volume, covers 1962 to 73. Uh, it's up on that shelf somewhere. I'm um, happy to say, 
and um, there was a second, third volume that are basically written, and I just have to do the production on it, and hope to, with this being the 30th anniversary of 86, 74 to 86, 87 to 99, and I'm very happy that people still ask me about it, because I've been slow to get it out. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, what did you think of what the Mets did now with Ruben Tejada? Um, sorry, I just wrote about that this afternoon. Um, you know, on, on one hand, you can replace Ruben Tejada, uh, and I guess you can do it more cheaply, which I think is really what it came down to. He was, I, it's funny to say he was making three million, so it was too much. Who, who knows how much is too much anymore? <laughs> you know, I mean, Cespedes makes 25 million, and they're happy because Kadair took two, or two to three million to walk away, and, and they only have to pay only 600,000 to DeGrom, and they, they made a qualifying offer to Daniel Murphy for 15 million. That was an insult. So I think it really came down to we don't need to pay a six-year veteran to be sort of our insurance policy X number of dollars. Uh, I liked Ruben Tejada. He was, I, I think he, when you're a fan for a long time, you become, I don't want to say attached necessarily. I'm not grabbing at his legs. I'm like, Joe I'm not grabbing his legs. Saying, Please don't, don't leave us, Ruben. But, you know, you, you, you get a real, I got a real warm feeling last year out of the guys who had been there during the losing years getting to be a part of the winning years and being kind of the reason, you know, not, not solely the reason, but Nice and Murphy and Tejada to Duda all getting to go to the postseason and Parnell and Mejia and G being on the team at least for a while. Um, so I'm sorry to see him go just because you get used to these guys. And I guess they figured, you know, to, to quote the, uh, the late Senate minority leader, Everett Dirksen, because I, I used to work with a guy who liked to quote him, who was an accountant. A billion here, a billion there, then you start talking real money. So I think that's uh, what it comes down to. All right, well, I think uh, because of the time constraints, we're going to have to end the podcast part of the evening. But uh, Greg's discussion was terrific, and the book is fascinating. So please pick it up. Thank, Thank you very you much, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.